Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tin and Duyeb and I'm pleased to say that I have been re-elected as leader of this podcast with over 60% of the vote. Which sounds really good, but as I'm mostly the only person that's involved in this podcast, what it really says is that I should probably work very hard on my confidence issues. It is the weekend of the Labour Conference 2016, or as it's known on Twitter, hashtag Lab16, which is an appropriate title given that it sounds like the latest in a series of failed experiments. Of course, the biggest story of the conference so far is that Jeremy Corbyn, aka Jay Corbs, aka Jezza Corbster, aka Jeremy from the Block, has been elected Labour leader yet again, proving that Labour are indeed best at wasting three months of everyone's time. This time round, Corbyn had an even higher share of the vote, which could be down to the increased membership since his election as leader the first time round. Or it could be because Corbyn's left-wing anti-establishment stance has really hit it off with members. Or, most likely, it could be because Owen Smith was the sort of alternative on the ballot that would make you think a potato with a face on it was a better choice. In fact, I reckon a potato would be less likely to get a roasting from the Tories or press than either Corbyn or Smith and make less of a hash of things in general. I'm really starting to think it's actually genuinely a good idea since I've said it, and not just because I reckon I have enough puns about it to last at least three of these podcasts. So now, uh, of course, with Corbyn back in the throne, the call from all sides of the Labour rift are for unity. Not Unity, which is a hot beverage made from straining liquid through the mythical unicorn beast, but Unity, an even less plausible idea that the entire Labour Party might work together instead of destroying itself. In fact, across the weekend, Labour MPs have been using the call for unity, much like racists use the I'm not racist but line. For example, various supporters of Corbyn kept calling for unity but refused to speak out against the deselection of MPs. Various detractors of Corbyn, on the other hand, called for unity but then continued to criticise Corbyn in all televised interviews and refused to join the shadow cabinet. Anti-Corbyn Labour activist group Labour First have been organising very specific groups to tackle Corbyn's supportive group Momentum all around the country and at the Momentum debate on anti-Semitism, people handed out leaflets for the expulsion of the Jewish Labour group. And while the left-wing side of Labour has been talking about tackling austerity, Caroline Flint at the Right of Centre Progress rally banged on about how most of our voters aren't homeless or poor and they want to hear about their lives too. 
because, you know, it's not as if most TV or radio doesn't help them achieve that already. So, yeah, I'm sure all those Labour guys will be hanging out, swapping loom bands and, like, super BFFs all by the end of the week. It's like the political version of the Suicide Squad, in that it's even more boring than you expected. Something that many commentators have been annoyed about is the fact that it's been decided that Brexit would not be on the agenda for this year's Labour conference. Obviously because Labour's increasingly environmental views seem to have extended to even trying to preserve the elephant in the room. To be fair, considering how little the government seemed to know about Brexit, I guess having a discussion about it at the Labour conference might have seemed more like a philosophy seminar. You know, if we don't know what a major policy and political change is, or when it'll be, and we spend ages talking about what to do about it, will it make a sound anyone really wants to hear or gives a shit about? Also, it will have been discussed and mentioned, but the four main subjects chosen by trade unions and party members were grammar schools, housing, child refugees and NHS. Yes, all things, well except maybe grammar schools, that will be hugely affected by Brexit. Great work everyone! Other notable things at the conference include Clive Lewis uh, saying that Labour's policy for Trident renewal won't be overturned, even though Corbyn is adamantly against it. But Clive Lewis did say that Labour do stand for multilateral disarmament. So I guess they'll just sort of pop Trident in a large glass box saying to break in case of emergency when it's all redone. Seems a bit pointless to me. However, it turned out Clive Lewis's speech was edited on the autocue by head spin doctor Seamus Milne while Clive Lewis was saying it, which is hugely out of order and a really odd way to treat your shadow cabinet minister. I mean, if someone did that to me, I'd be so angry, I'd run around telling everyone just how great and how brilliant Seamus Milne is. Hang on. I didn't write that. Seamus! Emily Thornbury said Labour would focus on replacing the post-Brexit EU funding that will be lost from certain deprived areas that, yes, mostly voted to leave, because there's nothing that shouts British sovereignty like shooting yourself in the foot and then complaining that your foot is bleeding. Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell announced Labour would boost the minimum wage to over £10 in 2020, that they'd repeal the Trade Union Act and push for greener energy. He said they'd clamp down on tax avoidance and under Labour there'd be no more Philip Greens. Which is a little bit awkward as there's 972 of them on LinkedIn for the UK alone and I'm pretty sure they'll be very upset if they all have to change their names. McDonald said Labour would be an interventionist government helping small businesses and he finished by saying that Labour is a party where you no longer need to whisper it, it's called socialism which is both a powerful statement about the direction of Labour under Corbyn and McDonnell, and also another easy soundbite for the tabloid press to use to terrify people who think socialism means they all have to speak Russian and eat borscht. But really, they are all very sensible-sounding policies. The big issue is going to be whether Labour can get anywhere near enough to power to carry out any of them. Also, part of me really wishes John McDonnell had actually finished by saying, Labour is a party where you don't need to whisper it. It's called jazz. Then he just does a calypso leap off the stage. I mean, I reckon some proper jazz dancing would have really persuaded any swing voters out there. <laughs> Did you get it? Do you swing jazz? So sorry. Thanks again for subscribing and listening to the podcast. Uh, last week's horrific jingle asking you all to review the show on iTunes led to two brand new reviews. So I will take it as read that it worked and I won't play it this week, but you should know the threat of it being played again is ever present. So do get clicking those stars. Uh, and by that, I mean the stars on the iTunes review page. You know, don't go around just snapping your fingers at celebrities. You will get in trouble. 
Uh, a couple of things to mention this week before I ramble on. Uh, firstly, this may be slightly late notice, but if you're a listener in Liverpool or Manchester, uh, I'm going to be all up in your grill this week. Uh, I'm doing a double header comedy show with fantastically funny Beck Hill at the Unity Theatre in Liverpool on Thursday, September 29th, and the Dance House Theatre in Manchester on Friday, September the 30th. Uh, I'm doing some old and some new stuff kind of mixed together, and Beck is doing her brilliant, brilliant, uh, critically acclaimed show, Caught on Tape. Uh, it should be really good fun, so do pop along if you're nearby. Uh, appropriate details for both are on the respective theatre's websites or my website or on my personal Twitter as I furiously RT them, convincing myself that people still look at things on Twitter that aren't just gifts of cats looking sassy. Um, the other thing is that my film stand-up special, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, is still online and still £3. I mean, it'd be weird if I'd changed it since I banged on about it last week. Uh, but yeah, if you enjoy this show, then you'll enjoy that, as it's kind of like this, only it's that instead. Okay, so this week's show is slightly different to previous weeks, uh, partly because I have a chat with the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt, who covers many of the things I might have mentioned this week, and partly because I'm aiming to record part of this week's podcast at 2.30am straight after seeing the first US presidential debate. Uh, I have no idea if that's going to be any good, considering A, how tired I'll be, B, how depressed I'll be after watching it, and C, how much of my bottle of whiskey I'll get through in order to deal with what will undoubtedly be the sort of horror show that gets banned from screenings for 30 years for being being too upsetting and only when future generations are so far removed from it will it be released and viewed as hilarious nostalgia. Anyway, that bit will be towards the end of the show. This week I thought it might be nice to talk to someone who actually knows about politics in order to give you all a break from my half-researched opinions. Ian Dunt is the editor of the website politics.co.uk which is one of the leading political and completely impartial news websites in the UK. I regularly read it and often refer to articles from it for this show, and in particular I always enjoy Ian's very well-informed, well-written and often very candid opinions. So I thought I'd ask Ian all about the re-election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, the future of the opposition party, British politics in general, and where best to hide to survive the inevitable apocalypse. I hope you enjoy. So uh, it's we're currently, as I'm speaking to you, we're currently in the midst of the Labour conference. Um, obviously, the big news from that is that Jeremy Corbyn is now leader again, sort of predictably. Um, do you think they're actually going to unite now and be a proper opposition? Because they've been brilliant at opposing each other for uh, for the last sort of 12 months. Uh, no, I don't think they're going to do that. I think they'll stay in this period of, of sort of frenzied oblivion really um taking pot shots at each other because there really isn't a shared language that these guys have i mean one set are talking entirely in the form of principle the other set are talking entirely in the form of strategy without any real mention of convictions or principles at all and even if they were to suddenly start talking the same language and both be talking about their principles they would find that actually they have very different ones anyway so i just i mean the problems are fundamental to the relationship. They're not something that's sort of circumstantial or anything like that. So it doesn't matter how many times they kiss and make up. Those tensions are too severe. And I think they'll only go away when Corbyn is replaced or when the right wingers in the party just decide that they're going to go off and try something else. But I mean, a split would completely and utterly ruin them, wouldn't it? You see, people say, I mean, probably, yes. And people do say that. And, and I understand why they say it. You know, I mean, the, the, there's the brand, right? The Labour brand. And you'll go to they'll have experiences of going on the doorstep, you know, to people's houses and they'll go, well, this is a Labour voting family. And that way 
you just get a whole bunch of voters who will just instinctively vote that way, no matter what you do. So they're going to be very, you know, they'd be very nervous about saying goodbye to the Labour brand. But at the moment, I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in the States with Trump. You look at what happened to us with Brexit. I mean, this is a time right now where people want to take pot shots at the elite. And they are very, very unhappy with the status quo and the brands that are associated with that. So actually, you know, if you look at what happened during the split, way back when with the SDLP, they actually did very well at the start. And now it feels like the times are even more suited to someone splitting off and trying something different. I'm not saying suggesting it would work. I'm just suggesting that it might not be quite as catastrophic as many people presume that it would be if they were to give it a shot. Right. But isn't there the sort of issue with, with seats, I suppose? If, I mean, I guess if, if the right split, they'll have most of the seats on their side because the PLP would, would probably be with them. But still, surely splitting the amount of seats that they already have would be quite dangerous for them. Yeah, absolutely. But then the thing is, I guess what they would think is, well, we're heading towards oblivion anyway. You know, I mean, if it comes to a vote in 2020 under Jeremy Corbyn, all the signs are that it would be probably a worse result than they had under Michael Foote. So by the time that for an individual, I mean, you know, a lot of this is individual incentives. The Labour MP is sitting there looking at the situation um, and he has to sort of think, well, I'm about to lose my job. So, I mean, if, if there's another alternative there, which maybe, you know, has more chaos, more uncertainty to it, they might actually be in a position where they would do that on the basis that it might save them over the next few months. So I think if, if things were looking better for them within the Labour Party, it would be less likely, but things aren't looking good. However, that all being said, there are no signs right now that they are about to run off and split. It has to be said, like, there's actually less of that sort of talk than there has been before. And most Labour MPs that oppose Corbyn, the way that they talk about it, is mostly about taking regular pot shots at him, perhaps even every year, until they destabilise him. That argument has been undone a bit by the fact that he now has an even stronger leadership position than he had before their rebellion. But nevertheless, it's true that most of them aren't talking about splitting off at the time being. So the, the, well, there's two questions I want to ask you from, from what you've just said. The first is that, as you're saying, people want a, there's definitely this feel of wanting something different and people wanting to hit back at the establishment. And surely if there's that feel that... Uh, that that may you know that gives a better opportunity for Corbyn in some ways because he is so not not a run of the mill MP. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is that, that, that you know there's not just the, the Corbyn issue and the split issues. Obviously, with boundary changes in Scotland and the electoral registration reforms sort of knocking tons of people off the register anyway. Do you think Labour are kind of dead regardless? So on that latter point, I think they're they're in serious trouble. And even if you had a very impressive, you know, a new Blair coming along, who, you know, everyone in the in in the press seems like who had soaring approval ratings. Even then, I think you'd be looking at a pretty tough fight for Labour, given that they've just lost all of the seats in Scotland that don't look like they have any chance of getting them back. And given the other that boundary review is designed specifically, I mean total gerrymandering, really, quite quite disgraceful gerrymandering by the Tories, is specifically designed to just crush their vote. I think if you had a Blair now, instead of winning a landslide, you'd get in with a sort of, you know, a very tight margin of victory. It can be done, but it's very, very hard for them now in a way that it wasn't before. On the thing with Corbyn, I'm totally with you. And I kind of thought that the opportunity was there when he came in this time last year. I was actually pretty optimistic for his ability to bring new ideas to the table to say, for instance, talk about rail nationalisation. I mean, rail nationalisation is this thing that no political party is willing to say they would do. And yet it has huge support in the public. I mean, most Tory supporters actually support it. Most UKIP supporters would support it. And I thought, you know what, here's a guy that can come along, 
talk plainly, have actually some ideas that, you know, don't really get a chance in the press, but are popular with the public. And they might just, you know, mess things up a little bit, actually change the, the parameters of the, of the debate. That is not what he did. I mean, what he did was come on. I mean, and it was sort of evident from the moment that he brought Seamus Milne, who's a Guardian columnist, a, an actual Stalinist. I mean, explicitly so. He brought him in to, you know, to take charge of his sort of operations. And by the time that he did that, you just thought, oh, well, you're not, you're not going to try and actually talk in a language that people will understand. You're going to be straitjacketed by this sort of 1970s ideology that you have instead of trying to sort of weaponize some of those views into a language that could be comprehended by the public. I would, you know, when, it, when he brought in that guy, you mostly thought there's lots of sort of tabloid journalists, I mean, guys that work for the Mirror, you know, who, who basically do know how to take left-wing sort of ideology and weaponize it, retool it for a tabloid audience. He specifically didn't go with them. He went with the echo chamber option, and that's pretty much how he's done it for the last year. So I think the opportunity was there. It's just that someone of Corbyn doesn't really have the imagination or the intelligence to retool their politics to make good use of it. Yeah, I think it's sort of been one of the, the major things I've felt is that he's he's got the, the policies or the kind of at least the, the stance that people like, but no real power in voicing what those policies are mm. or what his stance is and no way of kind of reaching people yeah. with it. Um, but then I, I think there was also uh, sort of my view as a member of the voting public, I, I kind of felt the, the funny thing with the Labour leadership is the the other side that they were pitching, the Owen Smith side or whatever it was, was the same side they've been pitching for the last few elections that they've lost. So yeah. it, it doesn't feel like either of them have a particularly strong idea of what to do to get voters back on side. That's right. I mean, basically, I, I can hardly think of any group of politicians more pathetic than the Corbyn lot, apart from the right of the Labour Party, which is just, it's like an ideas wasteland over there. And you've got to, I mean, Owen Smith, I, you know, was as bad a candidate as I have ever seen in my life. I mean, he, his only quality, really, was that he would have been easier to replace than Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, apart from that, he didn't seem to have any... And such a depressing quality. <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, it's about as negative as you could find. But nevertheless, you know, this is it. The right of the Labour Party have no ideas. And when you look at them now, I mean, you know, these guys are coming out one after another, the Stephen Kinnocks and the Rachel Reeves and the Chukaramunas, well, basically, their response to Brexit, which poses an incredible risk to working class communities in this country, to manufacturing communities especially, is basically just to go, well, we need to get rid of freedom of movement. A an option which, even though it might appeal to their constituents, basically makes a hard Brexit almost inevitable. So even here, they don't have any ideas, really, and they don't have any real sense of conviction. And actually, what's telling about these kind of moves is most of these MPs are actually pro-immigration. And they come out with these anti-immigration messages because they think that that's where the debate is. They haven't learned a single lesson from Corbyn, which is that the public do want politicians with convictions. But that's the same lesson they could have got from Nigel Farage on the other side of the political spectrum. But they just don't get it. So instead, they keep on playing these sort of theatrical, frustrating political games of coordinating against where they perceive the public mood to be in a way that never does them any good, that always leads to that Ed Miliband, you know, will crack down on immigration mug, something that the public sees right through and the pro-immigrant sort of, you know, members of their party and potential supporters are utterly alienated by. So I think you're completely right. Like, really, the only thing that's more haphazard and inane and hapless than the Corbyn leadership is the way that right-wing uh, Labour MPs and MPs on the right of the party try to respond to him. 
And do you think so? I read your your article about uh, the Labour MPs that are now backing a hard Brexit, and I've seen you get quite irate about it on Twitter <laughs> quite a few times. Um, but it is such an an odd strategy, considering that most Labour voters did vote Remain, didn't they? I think it was like about two thirds. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, it, it seems such a very short term uh, view. You know, a, a short term solution. Um, I mean, surely they must realise that backing kind of a, a, um, getting rid of free movement would be really damaging to them as well uh, in the future. Yeah, well, it will be damaging to, to, to the economy at large. I mean, it will be hugely damaging to us if we see a massive reduction in immigration, which, by the way, is why we won't see one. I mean, unless we have a you know, complete collapse in the jobs market, it doesn't matter whether they get rid of freedom of movement or not. We'll be taking roughly the same amount of immigrants because we need them for the functioning of the economy. It's, it's just an economic case. And if we were to cut that number down significantly, we would have a very significant problem with our debt to GDP ratio, even more significant than the one that we already have, which is already very severe. The, the funny thing is that they're, they're playing into a strategy which would take us out of the EU. And really, that's that's because the Brexit problem is... Uh, sorry, I, I beg your pardon. Of course, we're going to leave the EU. I mean, take us out of the single market right. for a hard Brexit. Um, and that's because the Brexit problem is really one that's about time and capacity. Like, we've got a two-year timetable under Article 50 in which to do a legal sort of separation process, which would take 10 years, a trade deal with the EU, which would take about seven years, and organising membership of WTO and our schedules on that, which would probably take about another seven years. So you've got, you know, basically it's a programme that should take a couple of decades that we're being asked to do in two years. It is impossible to do that. It simply cannot be done. So if they're to say we absolutely are going to have freedom of movement as a red line. That is basically just a euphemism for saying that we're going to fall out of the single market with no trade deal with Europe, with no arrangements with the WTO, with no understanding of what our laws are for the last 40 years. That is exactly what happened to us. And once that happens, you suddenly see tariffs come up. You suddenly start seeing non-tariff barriers come up. All this technical jargon, which translates into mass job losses in the North, and for anyone who works in manufacturing, will be very, very badly affected indeed. So what's so disappointing is to see, it's not even really about the public message, it's to see them laying the political precondition of the most damaging possible effect on the people that they're supposed to represent and to do it in their own short-term political interests. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, I suppose, is that politicians can't really win on the Brexit thing at the moment because the government... Um, the government doesn't seem to have a clue what they're doing. And they are also, you know, various members of the Conservatives seem to be promising leaving or the single or staying in the single market but getting rid of free movement or, or the other way around without any kind of... Uh, backing as to how they do that with any, any sort of ideas. I mean, do you think the whole Brexit thing is just going to leave a ton of politicians having seemed as though they've, they've lied to the public or not delivered? It's, it looks like it's going to be chaos for them. Yeah, I think it will be. And I think it will, to be honest, be, there'll be some great pickings there for very cynical, smart, colourful politicians who can say that whatever happened is because of the betrayal of X. And I think, unfortunately, my, my hunch is that that'll be someone like Nigel Farage, or quite probably Nigel Farage himself, that whatever the negative outcomes of their, frankly, British minister's failure to mentally live up to the requirements of what is needed of them in those negotiations, we picked up by Farage as an example of a betrayal of the Brexit vote, and it was because they didn't take it far enough and blah, blah. Whereas in actual fact, what will happen when they go into those negotiations, you can already see people like David Davis losing their swagger day by day as the impossible complexity of what they've done finally hits them in the face like a cold, wet towel, and actually start to have to make compromises. 
if they want to protect the revenue that we get to the Treasury from the city, and if they want to protect jobs in the north. These are the kind of compromises they're going to have to make. And very sort of savvy politicians like Nigel Farage, populists who can speak in colourful language that people readily understand and, and feel compelled by, those are the guys that will pick up and do very, very well out of this complete mess that we'll find ourselves in for the next few years. We'll be back with Ian in a minute, but first... Brexit My favourite moment of the past week of politics was when Seamus Milne was just hanging around being excellent, as he always is, that Seamus Milne. Hang on, I didn't write that. Oh, bloody Seamus Milne. Sorry, what I meant was, my favourite moment was after thatched roof on top of uncooked dough and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson said on Sky News that it was complete baloney that there was a link between the EU single market and its principle of free movement. And, you know, he'd know, right? I mean, he's foreign secretary, isn't he? So he knows all about their odd foreign ways with their unpronounceable pastries and casual attitudes to kissing. Well, it turns out, surprise, surprise, that Boris has less of a clue than Alicia Silverstone in a 90s teen comedy. And here it is. My favourite moment in particular was when German finance minister, the incredibly named Wolfgang Schauburg, offered clarification for Boris by saying that there are four freedoms in the EU that cannot be separated, and Wolfgang said he'd gladly send Her Majesty's Foreign Minister a copy of the Lisbon Treaty. And that he can also say it in English if he needs them to visit and explain. Boom. Those Europeans throw some serious shade, which explains a lot of their moody art house films. Boris, an advocate for the Leave vote, but only seemingly because even he didn't think anyone would listen to a moron like himself, uh, also backed giving £5 billion of the UK's contributions to the EU as funding to the NHS, which, you know, is only £345 billion less than the Vote Leave campaign promised and put on the side of a bus, but hey, I guess it's the thought that counts. And he also said we should be out of the EU by the next round of MEP elections in 2019, meaning that we'd have to leave by May next year. Or next year triggered by May. No one's really sure where the intonation was in that statement and so which May he means, but I guess we'll have to find out. And then of course there was all Boris's stupid stupid remarks about how he still thinks we can keep the single market in a Brexit without keeping the policy of free movement. Because apparently international trade deals seem to involve Britain saying I'd like this and this and this and this and then every other country keeling over and complying. I mean, it seems Boris still just lives in the 1800s in his head. I wouldn't be surprised if he promises France they can marry one of our princesses and Germany a galleon of gold and will assume it's all sorted. I mean, bear in mind that this week, Boris has already overtly stated that Russia are guilty of war crimes, which, while he's not really wrong, isn't the most tactful way of negotiating with Putin. I mean, you sort of assume the next meeting Boris has in Russia will involve him just blowing raspberries at Vladimir while saying that his dad is bigger than Putin, so he should back the fuck down. Though Boris isn't the only politician, I mean, if you consider that his main job now, considering all the travelling detracts from his post as village idiot, Boris isn't the only politician to think that the most important thing in a Brexit deal is getting rid of freedom of movement. Several Labour MPs, including everyone's favourite replicant, Chakra Munna, Jonathan Reynolds, Rachel Reeves, Stephen Kinnock and Emma Reynolds, all believe it's more important to scrap freedom of movement than stay in the single market. Because there's nothing like having a country where tariffs mean it's too expensive to buy anything from abroad, but we also don't make anything here because we don't have enough migrant workers to do the jobs that make the things that we would have. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Essentially, what you have is a group of Labour MPs willing to toe the completely false line that immigration is more than a fabricated problem in the UK, aiding the possibility of a hard Brexit and fucking over the entire country, when instead they could just say that this whole immigration stuff is a load of bullshit, let's try and negotiate the best deal for everyone. But of course, that would be too easy. I mean, unless this is some sort of new super desperate plan where all of those centre-right Labour politicians have realised the only way now to get rid of Corbyn is to destroy all of the UK at the same time. Possibly. And on the real life and how will this all affect you immediately front, many supermarkets are beginning to shrink packets of food and reduce quantities as well as use cheaper ingredients in preparation for increased tariffs on food exports. Still, look on the bright side, at least the next series of Celebrity Masterchef should be some interesting cross with art attack in some way. Hey, what are you making? Oh, well, it's a lasagna made with cardboard slats instead of pasta and water with red food dye to replace the tomatoes. Ah, oh, the taste of taking back control, eh? And now, back to Ian. So do you think we're sort of heading towards a kind of uh, a Trump landscape? I know people keep talking about the post-truth politics era, which uh, I always found quite depressing. And then the more I read, I go, oh, we, oh, we are, aren't we? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but do, do you think then that that's the, the possible, unless someone steps in with a definite kind of policy or idea, which is looking unlikely, do you think we're heading towards that kind of Trump-like uh, possibility? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, I think the Brexit vote itself was a result, you know, of the 2008 financial crash and the way that wages have stagnated and people feel that there's no sense of improvement in their lives. And, you know, that ends up in a place where they will just kick the status quo, whatever the status quo is, in any opportunity that they're given to do so. And the consequences of a hard, chaotic Brexit would be so, uh, so, so I mean, really so catastrophic on our economy that we could expect that kind of process unjust as it is to see it actually go again towards a sort of populist right response, actually double down on it, make it even more likely again that we would get a right wing populist who can actually sort of benefit and profit from that sort of situation. None of this has to happen, by the way. And and, and this isn't even an anti-Brexit point. You can do Brexit 
in a sensible way and it could be a success. I mean, if you were to just say now, we're going to have an interim deal that keeps us in the EEA, it keeps us in the single market and it ends in 10 years' time and that buys us the chance to actually sort out trade deals, to sort out our arrangements with the WTO, to avoid tariffs and to avoid non-tariff barriers popping up, to avoid these quite debilitating effects on our economy. You could make this thing work as long as you had a sensible timetable, lots of negotiation and trade expert resources and, you know, a minister ministerial team who understood what on earth it is that they are doing. The trouble is, we don't have any of those things. So it, it is in, invariably leading towards economic catastrophe. And typically speaking, the people that benefit from that are the far left and the far right. And in this country, I think it's much more likely that the far right would be the ones to pick up the pieces and capitalise. Yeah, that's that's how history kind of uh, has always dictated it, hasn't it? Quite terrifyingly. Um, I, it's sort of, I've noticed in the... Um, like there's been a few sort of local elections uh, and I think uh, sort of in the last couple of weeks and the Lib Dems seem to have made quite a sudden boost. Um, I mean, obviously they're not populist. They're kind of quite boring, if you ask me. But they, <laughs> I mean, is there a chance that they're going to be helped out by the kind of the, me- the Conservatives being in a mess, Labour being in a mess? Do you think the Lib Dems are going to have any sort of resurgence or is that a bit hopeful for them? I mean, they will. They will of some sort. I mean, I don't know. You know, Tim Farron, I think is quite realistic in this. I mean, he was, you know, in his conference speech, still saying, oh, you know, we'll, we'll pick up dozens more seats. So really, I think that he's sort of aiming, he would be very happy if he picked up 36 seats or something like that. Um, and I don't think that that's an unrealistic proposition, but it doesn't matter. I mean, A, it doesn't mean anything, because if you can't pick up seats now, when could he pick up seats? You know, you've got on, on one of their core issues, you know, the EU, which is almost like a metaphor for international, you know, cooperation, which a lot of, you know, there's obviously a, a fairly large, it's a minority, but a fairly large market in England, people who, who believe in that sort of thing. People who feel that their identity, you know, as, as internationalists has really been challenged by the Brexit vote. Liberals and, you know, young people who like diverse societies, they're all there for the taking. They're not being served by Jeremy Corbyn. They're not being served by the right of the Labour Party, neither side of which has anything to say about Brexit whatsoever. So in this situation, if the Lib Dems can't pick up votes, they'll never be able to pick up votes the rest of their life. So they'll get some more seats, but what does it even matter? I mean, if Theresa May sticks to her current timetable, you know, we should be triggering Article 50 in 2017. We'll be done with it by 2019. The damage will be done by then. Then you go to the country in 2020. I mean, the fact that there'll be, you know, a couple dozen more Lib Dem MPs after that doesn't mean anything. He's not in a position to stop any of it. So it won't really have any practical repercussions. My guess is he will be able to use Brexit to to turn the Lib Dems from their shattered point to the point that they were kind of at, you know, with sort of like about 40, 50 MPs before they entered coalition. He would be able to do that much faster than if Brexit hadn't happened. But it won't really help them in the long term, I don't think. And it won't really do anything to stop Brexit in the long term. So I think the answer is yes, but who cares? <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. Who cares? Who cares, Tim Farron? Um So just um, just back back to the Labour conference for for just for just a minute, as we're kind of in the midst of it. Um, John McDonald's. Uh, I was speaking to you just before John McDonald makes his big speech. I mean, do you think Labour have any have any kind of decent policies come out of this conference? Is there anything that they are pushing that you think is particularly interesting? They might be able to make headway on. I know McDonald's going to sort of talk quite a lot about uh, pushing for clean energy and banning fracking and things like that, which seems to me incredibly sensible. Uh, I suppose it just depends on how they go about it. But are there things that you? have heard over this weekend or, or know that they're going to pledge that you think that is good, that's what we need to be focusing on? 
I mean, the, the speech Madonna's about to do is he's going to guarantee that the funding that would have come from the EU for certain communities in Britain past the 2020 mark. The Tories have guaranteed it until 2020, along with subsidies for agriculture, something which McDonald hasn't mentioned, at least not in the advanced briefings of his speech. Um, so, I mean, that shows some signs that Labour's thinking about, well, hang on a minute, what exactly does this vote mean for poorer communities? I mean, it, it tends to be these were the communities that voted strongest to leave, I have to tell you, in this horrific piece of political irony. They are the ones who are generally the largest recipients of EU funding. Sure. Places like Cornwall, basically, is one of them. It's a pretty classic example. Although Cornwall is about to find out that it's going to use the regional guarantees of what a Cornish pasty is as well. So, I mean, they, they could have fun with that as well, because that's an EU. That's an EU law. Um, so, I mean, that's there. And it shows some movement towards understanding the severity of the circumstance that we're in. But even then, I mean, it's pretty wishy-washy stuff and pretty limited stuff. And he won't go any further when he starts talking about the single market. He keeps on talking about access, which is sort of a fudge word, which can be taken as code for, well, we're not going to fight to stay in as members. So there's not much there. I mean, we'll have to wait and see if Jeremy Corbyn can pull something out of the hat in the days to come. I would not expect that to be the case. I mean, his last conference speech was one of the worst conference speeches I've heard in my entire life. Really? It's rambling. It had no thematic content. It had no intellectual content. It had no emotional content. It was basically just like an old class warrior just going over, you know, all the hits, basically, from one point to another. Unspeakably tedious. And I would expect that his one this year to be pretty much the same. Wow. Well, I uh, look forward to that. <laughs> I'll get some popcorn. Um, well, so it's, it's, I, I keep trying to find ways to make these uh, interviews. I, the more people I speak on this, the more I think I should probably try to find a way to make them fun at the end instead of just, hey, everyone, it's going to be quite bleak for a while. Um, but I was going to ask you not to help this in any way. Um, there's the the big uh, Trump Clinton televised debate tonight, which I am going to try and stay up. I think I'm going to finish a bottle of whiskey that I've been meaning to destroy. Um, what what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it's you know there was a while where it really looked like there was no way Trump could win, and then him playing on the whole Clinton being ill uh, seems to have worked in his favour. Um, do you think we're going to see a, a US led by Donald Trump? I'm so increasingly terrified by this. But yeah, that's no, I'm not an expert in American politics at all, but that certainly seems to be the way that things are going. And the most of the commentators who I rely on for American news definitely have lost their confidence that they had earlier if he can't win. And that whole, I mean, I've got to say, the whole time that people were saying, well, there's no way he can win. You know, for, for Brits who've just sat here going through, you know, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's become leader. Oh, the Tories have managed to actually get a majority from the standing start, something that hasn't been done before. And then finally, oh, we've just voted for Brexit. People who are going, this simply can't happen, are becoming less and less convincing by the day, I think. And there is clearly a tide in the West of a retreat from globalisation, a retreat from liberalism towards old nativist identities based on your country and based on your religion and very often, you know, based on your race, this quite grotesque retreat into our old identities. And that's, I think, where the Brexit vote came from. That, I think, is what explains the rise of Le Pen in France um, or really of what's going on in Hungary, of what's going on in Austria, of even what's going on to a lesser extent in places like Germany and Holland. And I think that is about what's going on with Trump. And if any indication of the last few years tells us anything, it's that actually this is a man that could win the presidency. And if he does, all bets are off. I mean, that really is one of the most cataclysmic political events of our lifetime. And I personally will be stocking up on canned goods and weapons <laughs> and anything else I can do to survive 
the apocalyptic wasteland that will be left over once he takes charge. Yeah, I am sort of planning on just rewatching Mad Max and taking notes uh, for a little while. <laughs> I think that's that's my aim. Um, but it's it's interesting you you, you say that about the, the general feeling. It does sort of feel that it, an increasingly uh, sort of a, a globalizing world and in, in a world in which it's increasingly easy to communicate with people across the planet and find out what's happening. Uh, the Western world seems to, or or the public in the Western world seem to want to shut themselves off from it. Um, and do you think that's uh, you know, there's really been a narrative that people from elsewhere are dangerous and people from elsewhere are ruining things for us. Uh, do you think we, we need a, a different voice or a different viewpoint in order to change this? What's what's the way out of this rather terrifying situation we're in? That, that is a very big question. So. Yes, sorry, you don't have to answer it all. You don't need a definite answer yet. <laughs> um, I, I do think what would help is if the left regained, and liberals themselves, Anyone really that considers them on the centre of the, themselves on the centre of the left regained a sense of understanding what patriotism is and people's need for identity in their tribe in, in whatever way that is expressed. Because when the left can't talk in this way, it just hands it to the right to be able to talk about sometimes the feelings of insecurity, the feelings of being left behind, the feelings of losing identity in a globalised culture that people are feeling. So as two things have come along, number one, technology, as I think you rightly point out, and this sudden interconnectedness that we have, the ability of very poor people in very poor countries to see how we in the less in the West live and decide, well, you know, I want a bit of that, starting these very large migration flow patterns. And also that sense of the homogenization of global culture with multinational corporations and people wanting more identity in their lives, more, more meaning in their lives than just that, you know, the occasional war that Britain goes into and, and a flag flying somewhere is not enough. You have to give them more meaning. And then the sort of economic consequences of globalization, of smashing down wages, of not being able to recover from the financial crash. I think those twin advents of technology and the economic effects of globalization are triggering this feeling, this retreat into identity. And only the right has the sort of rhetorical weaponry to actually talk about that kind of stuff, to actually be able to communicate people's concerns on it. And until the left and liberals and centrists develop something themselves, we're going to constantly leave that territory open for right-wing, populist, irresponsible politicians. Instead, we need to find a way of talking about ourselves so that we have something to say to people at this specific moment in time. Right. Well, that is a terrifying way to end the interview. Um, uh, let's, I'll tell you what, a slightly lighter question. If, if, if it all goes wrong, which country do you reckon you'd like to live in? What's your preferred? <laughs> I'm thinking Iceland. What, what? Yeah, well, you see, this is the thing that I, I think Iceland's not a bad choice. I was like, you don't really want to go anywhere in Central or South America because it's too close to the US if there is some kind of nuclear <laughs> exchange with the Trump president. You don't want to be anywhere near Europe, and you certainly don't want to be anywhere near Euro Asia, which I think is going to be a flashpoint. You want to check out the wind patterns so you don't get nuclear fallout. <laughs> I think you'd end up thinking somewhere in Australia or South Africa is probably your safest bet. Brilliant. I like how well you've thought this through already. It's, uh, it's very, uh, very reassuring. Huge thanks to Ian for taking the time to chat to me. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Ian Dunt. That's I-A-N-D-U-N-T. Uh, and do check out politics.co.uk for a constantly interesting and informative view on political happenings. As always, if you'd like to recommend someone I should try an interview for this show or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about, uh, please do drop me a line on at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> This week, running on a similar unoriginal theme to last week, because look, I have to pretend to make time to have a life sometimes, I asked you, the revolting electorate, 
what talks or events you think would be at this year's Labour conference. And oh, you did reply. At Budgie says, just a hit, uh, sorry, minute with Ken Livingston. Philip Alexander says, Mr Corbyn or how I learned to stop worrying and love Trident. At Jane Mortimer says, uh, how to make jam and alienate people, hosted by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, particularly alienate diabetics like me. I wouldn't go to that one. Uh, at Gavin Kernow uh, says, it'll be all right on the night, uh, which really needs to be hosted uh, probably at the Labour conference every single one between now and 2020. Uh, at Ethan D. Lawrence says, uh, wiping the slate clean, a presentation by washing machine salesman who may or may not be Keith Vaz. Actually, I think you find uh, Keith Vaz is most likely to be found at the Labour Party conference after party, where he'll be supplying all of the fun time drugs with him and his two, I swear, their friends' friends. Uh, at Bobidor sent as a couple, as he always does, uh, coup strategy, key lessons from recent history, um, and keeping things together after failing to break up. Very important. At Early Late Review uh, said card gluing lessons. Uh, at Matt Hoss said there'd be a Labour film screening, Marvel Civil War. And at Paul Jenkins has gone for a classy pun with a presentation led by Momentum, herding skills for dealing with unruly cattle. Uh, I wrote a few myself this week just to cheat. Uh, I thought a typical day's planning would be 11am on the Labour conference. How to get a seat on a rampant train by Jeremy Corbyn. Followed at 12pm by Owen Smith. How to beat off 1200 boys in order to get married. At 1pm, how to hate Tories as much as you hate your colleagues. At 3pm, what is unelectable? At 5pm, Ed Balls does a special show with It Takes One to Tango. 7pm, keeping your friends close, but your enemies even closer by making them your colleagues. And at 8.30pm, a joint talk by both Momentum and Progress called Working Together to Stand Still. There'll be a new question of the week next week. Uh, check our Twitter or our Facebook groups for the question and send us your answers. Will it be Clinton or will it be Trump? One's all mean and one speaks from his rump. One's quite ruthless, one has no brain, but one of them's gonna win the presidential campaign. Oh yeah, it's the US presidential campaign. Okay, so a little preamble before we zoom into the future, which of course will be your past, because uh, when you listen to it, I'll have already done it, but at the moment it's my future. Exciting, I'm like a time lord. Uh, I'm going to be staying up to watch the first US presidential debate. Uh, this is going to be the first big one between the woman who looks like she'd cut you with a blade if you didn't use a coaster for your drink, and a giant infected blister with a wig on it. The first presidential debate is usually watched by around 100 million American TV viewers, but this is probably going to be a lot more tonight, as it's always nice to witness the moments that lead to the point that you'll have to tell your children about how you survived it. Oh, and I'm going to watch it, so that's 100 million and one. Currently the candidates are neck and horribly swollen orange neck in the polls, ever since Hillary's pneumonia scare. You know, the scare that fitted in with Trump's bullshit stories that Hillary is basically a barely animated corpse, even though Donald Trump himself constantly looks like he's burning up with something you only get from having sex with something he found in a skip. So, the big thing with this debate is that the Democrats want the host, Lester Holt, to fact-check all of the statements that both candidates say. While Trump's campaign wants absolutely nothing of the sort, as since they worked out how to stop Donald's nose growing, they've been getting away with complete and utter nonsense. So, Trump is probably going to spout utter crap, no one will challenge it, and America will be on the path to making Britain the second most ridiculous post-truth idiots on the planet in 2016. So, I have a massive glass of whiskey, the TV's on, 
I'm looking at different ways I could build a bunker if shit goes down, and I'll see you on the other side of this televised shitstorm. Okay, so it's quarter to four in the morning. I have just witnessed two hours of the Trump versus Clinton debate. And I can honestly say, I don't think my life is any better for having done that. I think had I gone to bed and had a really nice night's sleep and woken up tomorrow and read about it, I think I'd probably be in a far better position than I am now. Instead, I have stayed up way past my bedtime in order to hear a man shout like a nine-year-old child uh, lies and bizarre apologies, uh, sorry, bizarre defences uh, for horrific behaviour. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, Donald Trump seemed to think that uh, the whole birth thing where he insisted Obama wasn't born in the US and he needed to produce his birth certificate, his excuse for that was, well, it was me that caused him to produce his birth certificate. Yeah, that, that doesn't mean it was good what you did. Uh, he sort of, sorry, I've had whiskey, I'm very burpy. Uh, he then, you know, sort of backed the fact that his early business blocked black people from being tenants and uh, was sued by the Department of Justice. And his uh, defence for that was, oh, well, the Department of Justice sued loads of people for that, which is basically saying, hey, look, there are loads of racists, so it's not my fault for being one of them, uh, which is ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, he just, he, he speaks like such a fucking idiot. Uh, one of the phrases he used was uh, a very against police judge, which I think is like the political version of a most reverend. Um, I mean, he uh, he said that he, we we can't protect countries that don't pay us what we need, which is a bizarre, insular, horrible view. And I, I can only presume he's sort of going to become some, a kind of global debt collector if he becomes president. What, you're only going to help Syria if you go in with a bunch of repossession guys and take away all their furniture and televisions first? Is that how that's going to work? I mean, and he ended by saying that everyone would agree with him about saying vile things about Hillary Clinton, um, but he refused to say them because it's not nice to do attack ads after he's ran an entire campaign attacking Hillary Clinton for one reason or another. Uh, he admitted to not having given much thought to NATO. He admitted to not paying tax, which he said made him a smart man. Um, and he admitted to not paying people who he hired for a job, which I can only... Uh, his, his defence was maybe they hadn't done a good job, so they didn't deserve to get paid. So I sort of hope that that means if he does become president, about a week in, they can just stop giving him his salary. Uh, and uh, the other thing was blaming he or saying he had a much better temperament temperament than Hillary Clinton, uh, which he shouted quite loudly over her uh, while she tried to talk and then uh, while she stood there very quietly. So um, clearly uh, already just proving his own point is bullshit as he does it. Um, Hillary, on the other hand, uh, dressed all in red, I suppose, as a sort of uh, rag to Donald Trump's bull, uh, endless bull. Um, she was calm. Uh, she had policies, uh, she had researched things, she had facts, uh, and I guess the problem is that's not what Donald Trump supporters want, do they? They want bullshit. They'd, much, they'd be much happier with a man that just simply stood on stage and said we've got to build a wall to protect ourselves from unicorns and trolls, and uh, as long as he shouted it 
in uh, baby language without any kind of establishment vibes to him. So, I mean, is this TV debate going to change anything? Probably not. Uh, I will say, I don't think Hillary Clinton was asked that many dodgy questions. They didn't ask her about Benghazi or anything like that. But uh, as uh, John Oliver, who nails this, uh, said on this recent episode, her scandals are far less bad than Trump's, so they need to be picked up on. Um, I I just think America is hurtling towards a terrible, terrible fire. And uh, I just want to say to any American listeners out there, um, no, I've got nothing. I've got no words of hope for you. Uh, I'm, I'm too tired. I've had whiskey. I'll think about it tomorrow. And uh, you know, we'll, I don't know how we get messages to you in America. We'll telegram. I'll telegram one over. Uh, but yeah, just good luck, guys. It's it's really really grim watching an orangutan just shout nonsense and have people cheer. If I wanted to see that, I'd go to a zoo. At least it would be genuinely entertaining. Right. Good night. And that is the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thanks again for listening. And please, please, please do spread the word like it's some sweet, sweet word jam. And give us a review on iTunes, as I've been told it helps by people who have much better podcasts than I do. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Adam Buxton's podcast, uh, which is a constant favourite of mine because he is brilliant uh, and I admire his jingles. I bet he doesn't have a crappy review on iTunes one like I do. Uh, anyway, on Adam Buxton's last one, uh, he recommended Malcolm Gladwell's recent revisionist history podcast, uh, which in particular is about the satire paradox. It's really, really fascinating listening if you get the chance, although ultimately it will mean that whenever you listen to this, you'll go, oh, it doesn't really, doesn't really change or do anything. Uh, anyway, it's really good. Um, also, I really love the New Economics Foundation's weekly economics podcast, which is only 15 minutes every week um, of easily listenable, clear, clear chat on economic stuff that otherwise I would never understand. It's really, really good. Um, but obviously, don't listen to either of those podcasts instead of this one, because that would be cheating. And yes, I would know, because I have a private detective who goes out and takes pictures and would show me evidence of you not downloading Parpol Bro and instead indulging in more intelligent, better produced podcasts, and then I'll have to eat ice cream in my pants crying in some sort of montage sequence. Sorry, got a bit carried away. So yeah, uh, do drop me a line on at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. About, well, you know, anything you want to drop me a line about, really. Uh, your favourite banjo solo? Exactly what size teacup you'd need to fit a storm in it? Uh, how do they get almond milk when almonds have no discernible teats? You know, anything like that. Uh, next week's show may be a little bit late on account of me being up north all week, uh, but it will be there eventually, so I shall talk at you then. This week's show has been brought to you by the numbers. Seamus Milne is such a great guy with great hair and a real fancy swag. Hang on. I didn't write that. Bloody Seamus Milne. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.